If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Nurse Wellness Podcast, empowering nurses to manage stressors so they can intentionally reconnect with their purpose, optimize their wellness, and ultimately show up in the world the way they want to be seen. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Wendy Garvin-Mayo, your stress solution strategist. In this podcast, you'll receive actionable stress management tips, insightful interviews, and strategies that focus on inspiring you to be your best, do your best, and give your best. With that, let's get started. All right, welcome to the Nurse Wellness Podcast, Dr. Immaculate Can. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your nursing career? Absolutely. Thank you so much, first of all, for giving me the opportunity to have this wonderful dialogue with you. And, um, and I just appreciate the incredible work that you are doing. Um, it's so needed in our profession. And, um, and from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate you and all that you do for our community. That's so imperative. Um, so a little bit about me. Um, I'm currently living in Stratford. I've been living here for about 30 years. I have four children and believe it or not, five grandchildren. So I started a little bit young. <laughs> um, I am very involved in my community and that is really stemmed from my childhood. Um, my mom died when I was uh, at a very young um, age. I was a baby when she passed away and I was really lucky to have um, family members um, and my community, uh, teachers, there were the individuals who really raised me to be the person that I am right now. And part of that um, upbringing was very much on community. And I think I have the heart for me to be involved in my community and the work that I do is because of all those um, um, wonderful um, values that they instilled in me and that I give them all the credit. Um, in addition to my faith, you know, I give God um, all the honor, all the glory um, um, for putting me where I am today. My family, I appreciate all that they've done for me and my teachers. Awesome. So, so a little much. bit about me. Yes. Yeah, no, community is so important for upbringing. You know, they say it takes a village, right? It does. And I, and I have to say that my my husband, he'll kill me if I don't mention him. <laughs> and um, he's just been such an amazing person in my life, just always by my side, always supporting um, this journey that I'm on. And and I have to give him just um, just really props for just being such a wonderful man. And I'm and I'm grateful and I'm blessed, you know, to really have him. 
Yes, no, thank you so much for um, mentioning him because we do not want him <laughs> <laughs> to talk to you after this interview. Uh, can you tell us, a little, tell us a little bit about your nursing career. How did you get into nursing? Oh, believe it or not, um, I got married at a very young age. I was only 17 years old when I got married and um, was pregnant. Um, in my culture, actually, when you are the Haitian culture, is that when a young lady um, is pregnant, the expectation is that young lady is going to get married. So um, I was married. This is my second marriage that I'm in right now. With my first marriage, um, my husband, um, Anthony, we were young. I was only 17 and he was 25 years old at the time. And, um, and I became pregnant and, and part of, um, when giving birth, you know, in the city, because I lived back then in New York City in Brooklyn, um, it's very, it was very hard because I was alone, um, in a hospital room, um, didn't really have much support. Um, and part of that reason is if you know Brooklyn, New York, is that you have to do a lot of, um, you know, off street parking. So we, as young individuals, didn't really have the money for him to put in a meter, you know, for him to be with me. So I was really essentially by myself giving birth to my first child. I was in labor for about 28 hours, and I didn't receive the best of care. And I remember one nurse um, essentially yelling at me <laughs> while I was in labor pain you know, saying, shut up. And um, this will teach you a lesson that you will get pregnant again. Um, and I, oh. I couldn't believe it. Even at the age of 17, at that point, I think in that hospital bed, I made the decision, I'm going to be a nurse and I'm going to be a different type of nurse because this person is not a reflection of what, who a nurse should be and not a reflection of nursing. Um, Thank God she was only with me for eight hours. <laughs> and the next person who came was just a different person, just uh, kind. And um, so I got to see the um, two different end of the spectrum, you know, with um, the care that I received. And I left that hospital determined that healthcare is where I want to be and the difference that I would make in nursing. But prior to getting pregnant, at a very young age, I was very involved in terms of um, working for different organizations. Um, I was um, um, working for, uh, I, I was taking care of an older woman in my community. And so I think combined with taking care of an older person in my community, providing services for that person, feeding her, um, and doing nursing skills, nursing um, uh, nurses' aid skills that couple with my experience gave me the determination of the importance of being in the healthcare field. So that's how my nursing career started. You know, it started in one part in a good way, providing care for my community, an older person who lived in my neighborhood, and then receiving terrible care which made me more determined of the importance of having good nurses in our profession. So that's how my journey started in nursing. 
I'm so happy that that experience did not turn you off from nursing. So I'm glad that you channeled that and said, I want to be a better nurse. So I guess my question is, did you become a labor and delivery nurse? Where did you start your career? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be in labor and delivery. Um, when I graduated um, nursing school, I actually applied um, um, you know, to work with um, in oncology with death and dying. And unfortunately, I didn't get the job, but I don't think it was meant for me, you know, for me to, um, to have that particular job. And at that time, um, I had my children and um, someone that I knew that worked in detox um, said to me, we need someone, you're taking care of your children during the week, we need a weekend nurse. Um, how about if you come in and work, even if it's temporary? So I said, okay, weekends work. And um, I started working actually in detox, um, providing care for people who are um, inflicted with um, drugs and mental illness. And, and I think that was the path that I needed to be in um, because since then, I've actually thrived in that particular area. And today I'm a board certified psychiatric nurse not just a, a nurse working in psychiatry, but I furthered um, my education and became board certified. And I've done tremendous work in that particular area. And this is an area that's so stigmatized, you know, by, a, by a, our society. And I have to say, just really, this is my faith talking, that my God saw my heart and where I needed to be, not that I wouldn't have been an awesome um, oncology nurse, but this was an area that I think really needed for me to be there because of the stigma. Um, my, as an African-American woman, I grew up with a, you know, a lot of stigma, you know, a lot of struggles and trials and tribulations. And these individuals in, in mental health and people who have um, addiction problems, um, we tend to cast them out as a society. And um, so I really fit right in, um, in that particular area. And I never regretted a day in my life, you know, working in that area. And I'm grateful for those opportunities as well. I think it's so interesting that you see there's always um, a path for us. You thought it was oncology. And, you know, it, we pushed you somewhere else and you're thriving there. And I think it's important to highlight that. It's important to accept opportunities that come to you, right? So it started off with working weekends as needed and it turned into a career for you. So I think that's amazing. Such an awesome story. Yeah. Now, I know you have a doctorate in nursing. What I do. What motivated you to go back and get your doctorate and how has it impacted your career or even your um, commitment to your community? How has it worked in your life having a doctorate degree? Well, me having a doctorate degree is a promise that I made to my dad. Throughout my life, my dad, since I started working in nursing, my dad used to introduce me. Oh, this is my daughter, the doctor. <laughs> 
So, and I used to say, dad, you can't go around telling people I'm a doctor. He says, oh, well, you will be a doctor. So I'm going to stop calling it. You will be a doctor. And I expect for you to be a doctor. So I, and, um, and I remembered when I graduated with nursing, my, with my nursing degree, I had an associate degree. And my dad at that point said, you need to go back to school and get your bachelor's. And I hummed and I said, dad, oh God, it's going to take four years for me to get my bachelor's. And his response is, four years will come. The difference will be whether you have your bachelor's or you don't, but you cannot stop four years from coming. So I expect for you to go back to school and get your bachelor's. So I did. And then what developed from that was a bug for me to go on and get a second bachelor's degree and then for me to get my master's. And after I got my master's, my dad was so proud and he continued to call me. This is my daughter, the doctor. Um, he passed away, unfortunately. He didn't get to see me um, um, obtaining my doctorate degree. Um, but after he passed away, I, I felt compelled that for me to keep the promise of furthering my education. Because what I really looked at it is, you know, having a doctorate degree was just not for me, but it was for also all the young girls, you know, to see that we as women, that we can do so much, not just for ourselves, but for our community, for our profession, um, especially young black girls, to know that they too can do it. And for us to empower them, you know, for them to further their education. Um, so with, with me growing up of always giving, because it's just something that was so instilled in me to just always give. One thing that I've done since I've gotten my doctorate is also to mentor other nurses to get their doctorate and encourage them to further their education because education is so important and it's so significant, especially now in this world, um, for you to be able to have a meaningful um, job, for you to be able to make meaningful changes. You know, having a doctorate and, and being an author in the area that you've decided to work can be so impactful in raising up our community as a whole. So it was just, yes, part of it was honoring my father, honoring his, you know, what, you know, what, what he expected, but part of it also was honoring myself, but honoring the generation to come, you know, for these young girls to see that you can do it. And for me to also encourage other nurses to further their education. Because my dad always said, you can talk the talk, but you've got to walk the walk, you know? So I've learned at a very young age, it's just not talking the talk, but I need to walk the walk as well. So that's, that's those are the reasons I became, I, um, and I love it. I, I, I love, I love what I do. I, I, I love being a nurse and I'm loving mentoring um, nurses who are getting their doctorate as well. And, um, and it's beautiful. Mentorship is so essential in our profession of nursing. And I think people don't really know the power of mentorship. 
when you first start a nursing job, you have a mentor. But mm-hmm. I'm an advocate of you need a mentor throughout your, your life, right? So whether it's to meet your own personal goals, your professional goals. Um, but I think, you know, having a doctor in nursing, it's essential because you are really able to serve on a different level. Yes, absolutely. It makes a difference that um, I, I one, one of the things that I do is that I, um, you know, part of my involvement in my community is that I would write testimonies, testimonies for um, for the legislation, you know, um, on different topics. So one of the topics that's really dear to my heart is, you know, gun violence and uh, and helping our legislators understand that we're not taking away the rights of individuals, but really having um, impactful, meaningful, sound policies in place so individuals don't hurt themselves with a gun. You know, so this is talking about the mental health perspective. Um, it makes a difference that when I'm speaking to them, that I'm speaking to them has Dr. Immaculate Hand. You know, you catch people's attention as opposed that I'm, I am not, not to demean or degrade or anything like that with anyone who don't have a doctor, but it's, you just come to the table with a different light. You know, they look at you in a different lens. And, um, and you know, and, and that I take, I capitalize in terms of trying to change our community and trying to, um, you know, just make things better for all of us, you know, as a whole. So, yeah, so having a, your doctorate is very, very important. And I hope and I look, you know, for the day that nurses just don't go into nursing just to make a paycheck, you know, but go into nursing to have it really improve the care, you know, of the individuals that we're providing care for. Um, You could provide care for individuals with your associate degree, and that's awesome being by the bedside. But providing care and, and making policy changes when you have your bachelor's, your master's, and your your mindset is at a different place um, in, in terms of providing better care. And that's what we strive for, right, is to provide the best possible care that we can for our clients and for all of us as a whole. And I think that's the difference between a job and a career, Nursing is really a career. It's not a job where you just go and you clock in and you clock out. But I also think having an advanced degree is important because you are able to contribute to the profession. You're able to contribute to the evidence-based practice, right? Yes. And one thing I always, um, you know, tell nurses is that we are so powerful. We come with so much. We have so much to contribute that we can tap into and really contribute to the profession. So people can read about us. When we're yes. not right, it's your legacy you're leaving. So I, I'm totally on board with that. Yes, absolutely. But you you look at different professions. You know, the entry level of um, let's say a social work, um, although it could be a bachelor's, but really it's really recognized when you have a master's. Um, you look at pharmacists right now. You know, they are required to have a doctorate, and and that's where we're going. You know, how, you know, has a society 
And it is so important that we continuously encouraging our nurses, you know, don't stop at an associate level, don't stop at a bachelor's level, you know, keep going up. Now I have friends and they are master's level nurses, but they've decided to stay at the bedside. And that's wonderful that they've decided to stay at the bedside. But what they're actually also doing is just not staying at the bedside and every day providing the same care. They actually have a voice of recommending evidence-based practice. So they're coming to the table with a different lens. They're deciding to stay at the bedside, but making positive and great changes with the doctors at the bedside. And we need that, which is important. I think you bring up another good point that we need to be at the table. We need to be at the table that impacts our practice, that impacts patient care. And I think that is so essential. And I do want to pivot a little bit here to really um, understand how you, I know you've always been um, a, a, you know, in public service. How did you transition from nursing into politics, public service? Because I know you are running for office, which I want to know so much more about. <laughs> but how did you make that pivot to really um, just engage yourself so much in public service? Absolutely. Well, I have to say my public service started at a very young age um, where my family used to take me to the soup kitchens um, because, you know, the, the understanding is that always be grateful for what you have and always know what others are going through. Because when we know, when we can, it's not sympathy, it's empathy. When we can empathize with what other people are going through, I think it gives us greater gratitude and for us to making our world a better place to live. So my public service started at a very young age. Um, soup kitchens, homeless shelters. When I provided care at a very young age to a, a community elderly, um, so that was all part of public service. So it was really a natural transition. Um, and I wouldn't say transition, I would say more of a marriage, you know, between um, my career and also giving back to my community. When I really got into politics, and I would not say I'm a politician, I would say that I'm an advocate. Because if you look at my history and you look at the work that I've done, it's all advocacy work. Um, but politics itself, when I got involved with politics, is because of an experience, you know, that I had in my town, an experience of discrimination, an experience of, um, um, of the town making the decision of their hiring practices and hiring wrong individuals. In my case, it was a wrong individual that impacted the life of my child, of my daughter. And when that occurred to her, I said, no, I am not going to sit by and let my daughter be impacted in such a way and not make policy changes. So. We hired a teacher here in town and the teacher had a history 
And the town did not really investigate in the history of that particular individual. And that individual came in with that history and inappropriately touched my child. And as a mother, I was not going to let that go by because you cannot sexually touch a child and think to get away with it. So I started finding out who are the officials in town. And I really went to them and I have to say, I really did not get very far. And that's when I really learned about circling the wagon. Um, and it was really a rude awakening, you know, for me personally. Um, my, my child was going through a very, very tough time but I wanted to teach her that we all go through trials and tribulations in life, but we should not let that define who we are as individuals. So when something bad happens to us, we need to take that experience and turn it into a good to help others. So my child has already went through this, but what I'm thinking is what about other children? What are they going to experience? So we can't take back what has occurred, but we can make changes moving forward. And I ran for the Board of Ed because the Board of Ed basically said to me, they went like this to me. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, <laughs> this is Immaculate Can, <laughs> and you are not going to get away with this. So I ran um, for Board of Ed at that time. And that was my, I didn't know anything about running for office. I didn't know anything about campaigning. I knew nothing. I came in green, but I wanted to, again, make changes. Um, I didn't win. I lost by 100 votes. And for someone who knows nothing, who has no name recognition, and who's just coming out of the woodworks, <laughs> know nothing, no knowledge, to have lost by 100 votes, votes, I think that spoke volume. You know, and we're talking about a town-wide election. And, um, but I, I didn't win. However, that didn't stop me from continuing my quest because the idea was not winning. The idea was making changes, was making positive changes. So I had filed a complaint with um, um, the Commission of Human Rights, which we won the complaint. Um, and I say we because, you know, my daughter is really the one who went through those trials and tribulations and struggles and everything. You know, I fought on her behalf, but she won the complaint because she had to be strong you know, through that whole process. And what came out of it was now when teachers are hired, we need to do a background check. We need to find out who we're hiring. So that was such a huge achievement that I wasn't looking for winning the seat. I was looking for good policies being in place so that other young girls don't have to go through what my young little girl went through. So that was the really the start of me being involved in politics. And, um, and from there, I was asked again to, to, to run for planning. Um, you know, I came within 50 votes, you know, at that time, I think. 
Um, again, I knew nothing about politics, nothing about campaigning and, and you know, et cetera. But they were they asked me to step up. And every time that I'm asked to step up, I step up. I, I, I do what I'm asked to do, which is which is very important in politics. Um, but my political party saw just my drive and my desire, you know, to make things better that um, I was then there was an election. And I was elected to be at the state level Democratic Party. And this is my third term that I'm serving um, at the state level. And um, this year that just that just went by, I was the vice chair of my Democratic, the Democratic Party here. And I, again, I was asked to step up to run for mayor. And I said, absolutely, because there's so much we we could be doing better for our community. And and I'm just honored, you know, that I was recognized, you know, for me to represent my community. So that's that's how I got involved in politics. So, you know, I think the message that I'm trying to convey here is we all in our lives, we're going to go through trials, tribulations, struggles. Life is not easy. And I have to say, Oof, I can I can write a book, you know, with all the struggles that I have been through as an individual. But I never let those struggles define who I am. I never let those struggles bring me down. If anything, with those particular struggles, I gain strength to making things better and to moving us up. And even if I'm moving the needle a little bit, I'm moving the needle. And it's not me moving the needle. It's me encouraging others to come in this journey and for us to be able to move the needle together. Because I may have good ideas, but my ideas are only sound unless I can bring people with me. And that's part of being a leader. You know, you need to really be able to inspire in others, you know, the need for us to go in a certain direction. And, and being a mayor, I, I, I'm, I'm excited and I can't wait, <laughs> you know, for the election because I believe that when we come together for common good, wonderful things can happen, awesome things we could do for our community. And that's my goal, you know, of running right. Yeah, and it seems like you turn adversity into something so good. And even though you didn't win the seat for the Board of Ed, hearing your story, I'm sure, has changed so many people's lives and perspective. So you're still touching people. You're still changing people. And I think it's just an honor. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us because um, that, that's a very personal story. But I just want to thank you so much for sharing it. And you know, you just don't know how many people you will touch the more times you share that story. Um, yes. Now you're you're running for mayor. So from bedside to politics, like you really don't hear about that. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your campaign. The campaign is wonderful. Um, I am just extremely blessed, and I feel so grateful for the outpour of support that I have been getting. So I filed for me to run on the 15th of March. I announced 
um, in our Democratic Committee meeting on the 17th of March that I'm running. And my campaign manager said to me, we have two weeks before this filing, um, because every few months um, you have to file with the SEEC, which is the Elections Enforcement Commission, um, informing them how much money you're raising, you know, and et cetera. So he said, we have two weeks. Um, you're not going to be able to do much. Um, definitely, we're going to look to um, raising $10,000. And he said, it would be great if we could raise fifteen, but ten is is a good showing. Well, I am just super excited to say that after two weeks, we raised over thirty one thousand dollars. Wow! So <laughs> I think that really sends a message that people are looking for change, and. People would like to see individuals who are really caring about the community in a different way um, to represent them. I believe that my life story has positioned me to bring to the table at this time in our lives significant positive interventions to making our community a better place. The 30, over raising over $31,000 in two weeks, my manager said, this is the accomplishment of someone with humongous name recognition. This is not the accomplishment of someone who are just a community activist you know, a community um, person who's just, you know, advocating and, you know, just being out there and being a cheerleader. And now this is someone that's a really entrenched politician that will, um, will be able to accomplish something like this. So again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just really so grateful and, and I'm just so thankful you know, for the opportunity that individuals are giving me and empowering me and saying, we believe in you. We believe that you can turn things around. So therefore, we're going to invest in your campaign. Um, so to all of those individuals who donated to my campaign, um, there are no words for me to express gratitude for believing in me and believing in my leadership and where I can take our community. And I'm, I'm just really touched. I mean, I just want to cry, <laughs> you know, but we, we have a lot of work ahead of us. I have to raise um, approximately $100,000, you know, for this race. So we are off to a good start, but, um, by June, I would like to, you know, the end of June, I would like to raise another 50000 So um, it's, it's going to be a lot of work, but I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm doing it and I'm loving it and I'm enjoying it. You know, my dad always said, if you're going to do something, enjoy it. And if you're not enjoying it, don't do it. <laughs> I 
totally agree with your father. Yeah. <laughs> totally agree. Yes. And I think your four pillars speak volume. So you run on um, open, accountability, transparent, and honest. I yes. think those pillars speak volume to uh, a politician or someone in the public eye because we need that nowadays um, in politics. We need someone who's open, who's going to be held accountable, who's yes. going to be transparent and honest. Um, so I love those. How did you come up with those uh, four pillars? Well, you know, I think those pillars, you know, speak to my personality. Um, when we when early in March, um, speaking to my chair of the Democratic Party, uh, you know, he said, well, what do you envision your colors will be, you know, in terms of your campaign colors? And I said, well, my name is Immacula. And the colors of Immaculate Conception, you know, is yellow and blue. You know, that speaks to who I am. And and oath, that's that's what my pillars stands for. It stands for oath. And that's my oath to my community. That's the oath that that I've taken. Um, that's been so integral part of my life throughout my life. And that speaks to my character of who I am as an individual. And when you are giving an opportunity to represent people, we need to take that oath very seriously. And I think from what I've seen personally in politics is over time, politicians, they tend to forget that oath. And that is so unfair you know, to the people that they are representing. And to stay in office, you know, they compromise their values. You know, they compromise their integrity. But that's not the oath you took. You know, you took the oath to represent the people, not yourself, not your self-interest, but to represent your community. And that's, that's, been, that's been who I am. And I don't know if, if I can change who I am. So it was very natural, you know, for me to run on those pillars because that's what I've proven throughout my life to have been doing. So it was very easy to, to say, yep, that's, that's what I'm going to run on. I think it's always easy to run when you are authentic, right? It's, it's easy to run. It's easy to do things when you are authentic and you... Um, stay in tune to who you are at your core. When you start swaying from that or moving from that, that's when it becomes difficult because you, you're trying to be someone or represent something that you are not. So I think it, it's very um, important to be true to self in anything you're doing. And you are still practicing, correct? I am. I am. Actually, I have a wonderful job. And a lot of people have said to me, you are crazy. <laughs> you you work in mental health, but you are really have gone crazy <laughs> in a nice way, in a nice way. But um, I enjoy what I'm doing right now. But life is a journey. And when opportunities, different opportunities come, it's so important, you know, that we take it. Because looking back when I first started in nursing, I wanted to be an oncology nurse. That's the area that I wanted to do. But that wasn't part of my journey. You know, my journey was something else. 
And in life, I think we need to be open, you know, to different avenues, to different doors opening. And you never know how and what you're going to do to make things better for, 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 for us, for our community. So when the doors open, walk in and explore and and just go with the the drive or that I'm going to walk in and I'm going to make a difference. And that's what I've done being a nurse in the area that I'm practicing. And that's what I'm bringing to the table when I become mayor. And I, my dad always said, you call it. <laughs> you call it. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's all about service. You're serving. When you open that door, you show up and you serve, regardless what's behind that door, who's behind that door, you show up and you serve. And that will take you so far in life, so far in life. Yes. And I know you are a huge advocate for social justice. And right now across our nation, there's a lot of racial injustice going on. Do you have any advice for our listeners on what we to our listeners on what we can do on a local level to have a national impact? Getting involved, no matter how small, no matter how big, getting involved is so imperative. It's also important to find something that you're passionate about, that you care about, an area that you know that you could make a difference um, and bring others with you to helping you accomplish those particular goals. But when I started in service, you know, it didn't start with me where I am today. It started with me volunteering in the soup kitchen, in the homeless shelters, providing care to my um, elderly community. And then it went up from there. So I think sometimes people are very intimidated by getting involved because they look at me and they say, oh, no, I could never do what you're doing because it's just too much, it's overwhelming. Well, it doesn't have to, I, I gravitated in that area and I grew as an individual to be where I am today, but that's not where I started. So whether if it's volunteer work, a lot of people get involved in politics just by making phone calls, knocking on doors, you know, um, sealing envelopes you know, for, for candidates. You know, just those little things that they do. And then they say, wow, I really enjoyed this. I really can do this. That's how they start. But getting involved is so important, no matter how small or, or where you want to start, something that you you um, you care about, a subject matter that you're very passionate about, that you'd like to see change, or just simply joining an organization that's already doing the work and move on from there. But that's that's... That's, that's the advice that I would give, you know, to anyone. Um, at the national level right now, even at the local level, you know, there's so much going on. Um, you know, we talk about Black Lives Matter. We talk about racism as a public health crisis. Uh, we are fighting the same fight that we have been fighting for a long time. We just celebrated Martin Luther King's birthday. 53 years ago, he was fighting for workers' rights. He was fighting um, of his dream, you know, where Black people can be at the table, you know, and for Black people to be giving um, opportunities, 
economic opportunities. And today, 53 years later, we have the same fight. It has not changed. I'm very careful on how to use this word of awakening. You know, a lot of people are saying, we are in a time that this is a, a moment of awakening. Well, the awakening can only occur if we stay steadfast in what we need to do to make sure that we have an awakening. Because we thought we had an awakening 53 years ago when Dr. Martin Luther was fighting and, and the people who were fighting, you know, whether it's John Lewis, you know, and all these individuals who were fighting. We thought we had that awakening because we were kind of moving in a good direction. But then we didn't get much very far, in, in my view, you know, when we look back then and where we are today. Because if we had that awakening, we wouldn't have a 20-year-old getting shot, you know, um, with what just happened recently. Um, could have been, things could have been a lot different. In my community here, for 11 years, we have an individual that's been asking to really have awareness regarding African-American history. And he has a wealth of information, of artifacts to teach people about slavery. But we have not capitalized on what this person has to offer. 53 years later, we're still having the same conversation. So it really takes a village, just what, you know, just like you started the program of saying it requires us as a village to come together. More than ever, it requires a village. And the village is just not the African-American community village. It's the entire village. I am happy to see that more people, voices are in the conversation and wanting to see positive change. But we still have so much to do. We have a long way to go. Um, we're talking about right now a big issue is housing insecurities. And that's just a subject by itself. You know, whether if it's the police, you know, it's systemic racism. You know, it's the whole entire system is designed to keep African American individual, black and brown people behind. That's how a system is designed. So we have to be committed to changing that. And I'm going to keep the faith and keep the hope that that's the direction that we finally go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, something you said is, what made me think of is we need to take ourselves out of the center and keep the cause as the focus. So, you know, whether you're black, brown, white, purple, right? We're all about the cause. And I think the village is, is so essential for change, um, power in numbers for sure. Yes. And, and one last word I want to say before we get to the rapid fire is you wake up fired up because you're aligned. You are aligned in purpose and it shines through on this screen as I'm watching you. So, and it's not too much. And people always say that, oh, I don't have time. It's too much. How do you do X, Y, or Z? When you're aligned, nothing else matters. Nothing. And stay, and stay authentic. Just like you said, you know, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make the last comment before you get into rapid fire. You know, my, um, my manager said to me, 
you are perfect just the way you are. And if you go on my Facebook page, it, it's a reflection of who I am, you know, as an individual. Um, you're going to see me in the gym pumping iron. <laughs> you're going to see me loving my husband <laughs> um, and putting posts of things that are important to me that I'm, I'm coming to the table that this is who I am and this is what I bring. And I'm not going to try to shape myself as a different person. No, I'm going to stay true to being immaculate and stay focused on the issues. And hopefully then I'm hoping that people will come along and, and join, join the movement. And one last question. What are your thoughts on the increase in domestic violence during this pandemic? Yeah, well, as, um, as an individual that has experienced domestic violence myself and having been through that struggle, I would say for all the women or men or whoever is experiencing you know, domestic violence is you're not alone. There's help. And it's very difficult sometimes to make that de- decision and determination of walking away. It was hard for me you know, to walk away because I, I, I got married at a very young age. And unfortunately, um, my husband, ex-husband, who, who he's a good person, but he had a lot of anger issues. And, you know, that got into the way of, um, of our marriage and how I was treated as an individual. And the sad thing is his perception of domestic violence is you know, um, I didn't have any cracked ribs. I didn't, um, I didn't lose any teeth. You know, things that are very extreme, you know, or he didn't take a knife and stab me. Um, but he didn't really understand, you know, that beating up your wife is not healthy. And beating up your wife in front of your child is traumatizing. Um, and although it's very much cultural, you know, in the Haitian culture, but it, it's not acceptable. And for me, as a Haitian woman, I had to say, no, this is not the life that I want. And this is not the life that I wanted my children to be exposed to. It really required for people to give me the confidence. Again, the domestic violence, you know, shelter. Um, domestic violence and sexual assault um, facility to give me the confidence that you do, you don't need to be in this relationship because it's not healthy for you. We as individuals who have those experiences, we think it's our fault. We think that we're hurting the person if we were to leave. Actually, my ex-husband said, oh, if you leave me, I will kill myself. You know, so there's a lot of guilt, you know, there's, uh, it's very traumatizing. Looking back in my life, what I had to say is the trauma is just not me, but it's also my, my children who's witnessing, who's and this, is this right for them? Um, but you're not alone. There's people out there who would really want to see the best for you and want to help you change your circumstances. And so important to take advantage and to trust that you can survive because 
at, at the age of 19 when I left my husband and I was near homeless. I didn't have a job. I, um, it was a very tough time in my life. But again, it made me a stronger individual, you know, to saying, yeah, this is, this, this too shall pass. I will be stronger at the end. I'm grateful that that's kind of how things went. You know, I, I had to be strong to say that I can do it. And women need to know that they're not alone and that they too can do it. So I'm very involved in counseling. I wouldn't say counseling, but working with women with domestic violence. Um, I got the certification in uh, domestic violence and sexual assault. And this is all my way of giving back because I've been through those experiences and I know how tough and difficult it can be for women like me going through that. It's all about us coming together. Yeah. Now, what? thank you so much for sharing that. What would your advice be to someone who is in that situation right now? What's the first step they can take to get themselves out of that situation safely? Yeah, I look back of the things that I did and you have to be at a, you have mentally, you have to kind of get to that point of saying that I, I need to get out of this because this is not good. And then you have to make a plan, a safety plan, you know, to getting out because you just can't pick up one day and walk away. So you have to be discreet in terms of you know, packing up a bag where the perpetrator will not see it because if the perpetrator were to find that you pack a bag or you put some money aside and any signs that you are ready to leave will actually increase the violence and actually put you more at risk. So what I would say to women is, are you ready to do this? Because you can't be wishy-washy. You know, you have to say, I'm going to do this, and you do it. And prepare to do it. And by putting a little bag aside, putting a little bit of money aside, um, timing it when the perpetrator is not going to um, find you leaving. So in my case, is when my ex-husband went to work, I quickly packed up my kids. And I had a friend waiting for me a block away. Um, I had to make it look like if my ex-husband would have come back right away that I was going to the store. I was walking to the store because if the person was out there waiting, who knows what would have happened. Um, so you have to really look at your circumstances and then make a plan based on your circumstance. So. My circumstance at that time would not maybe be the same as the circumstance for someone else. So for someone else, it may be that they need someone waiting for them at the corner for them to jump in the car and run. You know, my circumstance at that point was I need to pretend that I'm going to the store block away in case if he was following me and then I can jump in the car, you know, and go. But putting a plan together based on what's going on with your life is very, very important. And, and those are the details that I would work, that I work with women 
into creating a plan, a safety plan of doing it, um, but doing it in a way that it doesn't raise an alarm for the perpetrator, because if it does, that person could be in so much, so much risk. Um, and what does COVID has shown us is that domestic violence has gone tremendously up. Why? Because people are at home, you know, um, and, you know, the reprieve, you know, that the, the person who's being abused would normally get, they were not getting it. Gun violence went up, you know, um, you know, um, during this time. So everybody's circumstances are a little bit different. It's very important to unpack that and then work with women to having a plan to, you know, moving out and getting out of the, getting out of the um, situation. So it's not a four size fits one, it's very complex. Yeah, and is there any resource that you can recommend or even your contact information, how people can get in contact with you or some sort of national domestic violence movement that can help them put together a plan or just talk through their current situation? Yeah, so, um, I mean, for me personally, you know, back then I used to live in Stanford, you know, so there was the domestic violence agency in Stanford that they were tremendous, you know, in, in helping me. Um, you know, put all that together um, and putting my plan together and for me to escape. And and I totally, when I escaped, I actually left the state altogether. I had to. Um, so in, in Bridgeport, we have the domestic um, family um, center, you know, violence center, you know, that individuals, you know, could contact. 411, 411 is amazing in terms of the resources that they can provide. Um, and what's wonderful with 411 is that it's, it, they provide resources in multiple different areas based on what your needs are and, and, and et cetera. So I would encourage folks to utilize 411 and explain what their needs are and they'll direct you, you know, to what you need to do. But folks, you know, my phone number is on my Facebook. It's on my website, um, Immaculate Can for Mayor. My feel free, you know, to send me a message, um, give me a call. You know, I've had those experiences. I've been through it. And whatever I can do as an individual to help another woman, another person, you know, I say woman because the research shows primarily women are impacted, but men are impacted also by domestic violence and sexual assault as well. And um, the LGBTQ community. You know, um, that's a problem. But I'm always available, you know, to provide um, guidance, you know, assistance as much as I can. Awesome. We're all in this, we're all in this together. For sure. So I want to thank you so much for being on. Before we wrap up with our rapid fire, is there, are, are there any last words you have for our listeners before we um, go into our rapid fire session? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm loving this, this journey. I am, uh, sometimes people look at running for office as exhausting and I get up every day and I'm fired up. <laughs> so for all those individuals who are listening, um, I ask you to join me. You know, I ask you to join a cause. I ask you to join something in your community that you could make a difference. 
And it could be a number of things that are dear to your heart. But whatever it is, you know, do something and and make the commitment to improving our our lives. Awesome. 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 This has been great. I, I, I don't want this conversation to end. We'll have to bring you back again. And I look forward to being back. Yes. All right. Well, now we're going to enter our rapid fire uh, question. So the first thing that comes to your mind, finish these sentences or just answer the question. So the okay. first one is wellness means staying grounded and staying steadfast and being centered of who you are as an individual, taking care of yourself because you can't give if you don't take care of you. For sure, for sure. I know I'm stressed when. Oh, I know I'm stressed when my body's crying for sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I listen. <laughs> when my body says, I need to sleep. That's how my stress level, that's how, that's how I know I'm really stressed, that I'm, I'm super exhausted and I need to sleep and I just listen and I give myself that time. And then once I'm rested, I get up and I'm a new immaculate and I'm ready to go. <laughs> that's awesome. Yes, because your body will talk to you if it needs something, for sure. And always listen. It's so important. Always listen. The last time I had a belly laugh was? Oh. <laughs> I thought we've been doing that. <laughs> that is throughout, right. this, <laughs> throughout this talk. I don't know if you if you notice, I've been smiling the whole way, you know, through this interview. So um, yeah, I have to say I've had it a few seconds ago. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. What's one thing you learned about yourself during the COVID-19 pandemic? Resilience. Mm. Um, I had COVID. And I was very, very sick for two months. And um, there were times that it was very scary. I came very close to being hospitalized twice. And I fought my doctor and I said, I'm not going anywhere. I lost a few family members to COVID. And um, so coupled with me being sick, losing family members to COVID and, you know, et cetera, I learned a different level of resilience. Not, I knew I always I was always resilient, but this was a little different when your life was possibly hanging in the balance. Wow, that's a I didn't know that. <laughs> so thank yeah. you for sharing that. Yeah, and then while you were talking, I was thinking, being the nurse, I'm not going into the hospital, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my doctor said you are so stubborn, <laughs> and we do as healthcare workers. We um, yeah, we, we do a very good job taking care of other people, but we don't do, we should do a better job taking care of ourselves. And I think with what you're doing, that's teaching us to do that. And that's reminding us the, the importance of doing that. Yeah, that's what this whole platform is about, is really about nurses, healthcare professionals taking care of themselves. Because mm -hmm. it, it, it's a pandemic <laughs> that we, we don't take care of ourselves, that we're stressed. It, it really is a pandemic in the healthcare profession. So, yes, absolutely. It is. It, it is a different level. Yeah, it is. You're absolutely yeah. right. Um, what is something people get wrong about you? Wow. Um, a, a, a lot of people don't know that um, I lost my um, sister in law to gun violence. And um, 
and that's why I'm very involved in in that particular organization. And um, and one thing that people don't know is that I own I own guns. Um, I um, but I am I got my permit. I have a trainer. Um, I'm continuously training. Um, I don't carry open, you know, carry out, but I do have it in case if I need it in my home to protect my family, myself. But um, but people will see that, you know, the goal is not about taking away your rights. You know, the goal is about being a very conscientious citizen, you know, around this particular subject. And, and that's my message and what I try to teach is whatever you do, be very conscientious of what you do. Take it seriously and also educate, educate your community. You know, um, it's a big responsibility, but very few people know that um, they, some people would say, oh, you're, you're a true Republican. You're not a Democrat because <laughs> Democrats don't own guns. No. No, it's it's um it's it's being um, conscientious, you know, conscientious of another level of responsibility, and um, and it's tremendous responsibility to be a gun owner. But always train, always make sure that you are keeping yourself up to date with the laws, and um, being responsible, being a responsible gun owner. Yeah, that's one thing that. A lot of people don't know about me. Very few people know that, but I'm saying it now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Our last question before we close out is, what are you grateful for? Getting up every morning and making it through the night and having another day, another opportunity to do good. Wow. What a blessing that is. And what an opportunity to start all over again. I mean, every day is, is an opportunity to just to just do tremendous work. And, and that I'm just always grateful. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for all that God has given me in my life. But I am extremely grateful for the opportunity to get up every day. That is awesome. I always say every moment's a chance to get it right, whatever right means to you. So... Well, thank you so much for spending your time with us. This has been such a wonderful interview. Really appreciate your time and everything you shared with us about yourself, your life, your family. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And I look forward to coming back again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Between episodes, you can follow the Nurse Wellness Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Before you go, I would love to share a seven-day mindfulness ebook with you. Go to stressblueprint.com backslash 35 and download your free copy. Until next time, go out and be your best, do your best, and give your best. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. 
There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.